Hello, and welcome to the Celtic History Podcast, Episode 8, Swords and Status. Hello and welcome back. I have to apologise for any uh, lasting strain left on my uh, vocal cords uh, today. I am just recovering from tonsillitis. Um, I also had an ear infection at the same time, so I've kind of been out of commission for about a week. So I did want to record this a week earlier, but better late than never, here we are. Last time we left off, we explored the outer layers of the giant's castle, and we met our protagonist, Servus Tullius Priscus, as well as the retinue warrior guide, Caraticus, the loyal retainer of Argeteryx, self-proclaimed master of the Honneberg. As Priscus and his retinue followed Caracas up the steep incline beyond the gate, the noise of the bustling inner settlement hit him like a wave. First, the many bleats and pads of the livestock in the pens surrounding the domiciles. Then, the steady hammer, followed by the sharp ting of metal hitting metal, and the loud hiss of the red-hot metal plunging into the cool, refreshing water. Ahead, Priscus could see women weaving and chatting outside amongst their friends as toddlers play with spare fabrics around their feet. One of the mothers hopelessly berates after her daring children as they whack at each other with wooden swords and wicker shields, flee cackling as they go. Priscus suspected this was the artisan's portrait, as he noticed the all-about full of fires, forges, and the hammering of metals. It was shrewd, he thought, placing all the work that requires flame at the edge of the settlement. As beautiful as he found the thatched roofs and carved wooden beams of the settlement, he imagined there would not be much left after one bad fire. One house had an array of pottery drying in the sun. As a man smoothed his hands over a pot he constructed as a young boy, presumably his son, spanned the wheel at great speed. Outside another home, there was a glowing conical furnace of what looked like clay. Around the dirt on the floor, there were several scorched circles, areas which previous furnaces had presumably stood before being cleared away. As they left the artisan quarter, they came to a bit of a courtyard with a well at its centre, around which were wagons and stalls with goods from all over the known world and even some of the unknown world. Beautiful amber jewellery of reds, yellows and golden browns, furs from exotic animals whose resilient coats could endure the lands even further north than the realms of the Keltoi. Tools of iron and bronze as well as beautiful torques of gold and gleaming metals. Were also goods Priscus was very much familiar with. Wines from his native Italia, silver coins with gleaming Etruscan images of lions, gorgons and hydras, beautifully painted pots from Greece depicting the battles of the gods, all of which he was well familiar. 
and of course, sacks of the white gold, the precious salt mined in the mountains we had passed through to get here. Priscus and Caracas carried on through the bustling market into narrower streets of the residence, continuing up the hill to reach the larger residences of the chieftain's halls of the elites and the wealthy trading princes of the Hanover. Priscus's heart was in his stomach. As warm as the welcome had been so far, he knew how much was riding on this visit for him personally. For his reputation, the status of his family, and the legacy of his father, and hope for an advantageous match for himself and any future children of his. As they approached the apex of the steep mud street, cresting Priscus's vision was the stunning face of the largest building yet. It stood a towering 40 feet high and 30 feet wide, hooded with a massive roof supported by regular wooden beams every few steps either side all the way to the rounded rear of the building. Its brilliant white surface was further painted with geometric patterns of blood red, much like the local pottery. Priscus's eyes were drawn to the tip of the roof, where a cross-section of beams crossed into two carved equine heads. At its base were two 12-foot-tall oak doors, currently firmly shot and watched over by four sturdy warriors of imposing stature. Caraticus approached the warriors and exchanged words with them quietly before returning to Priscus and his servants. I have informed my master of your arrival. We will wait to hear word. Always keep them waiting, he thought. This was a clumsy ploy if Priscus had ever seen one. Even the Hellenes would not presume to pull such an obvious move on a trained emissary like Servus Tullius Priscus. Priscus's nervous eyes wandered to Argetric's sword belt. He couldn't help but notice that this was longer, and of a much different style than the other warriors he had seen. It was certainly longer, and it came to a more gradual, wide point than the shorter, leaf-bladed weapons of the other warriors. Admiring my weapon, eh, Rasena? Priscus stiffened and looked up. Don't worry, I would too. It was a gift from my lord, you see. He pulled the magnificent iron sword from his sheath to reveal an intricately worked polished blade with beautifully carved geometric grooves from the tip to the handle. The handle itself was beautifully washed in cedar oil and the nails holding the blade to the handle were filed so finely that if you ran your finger over the handle there would be no trace but for the cold press of the metal. At its base, a disc-like pommel the size of the barbarian's massive clenched fists. Caracas, a man called, jogging down the hill to us from the hall. Thank the gods they had been interrupted. He wouldn't want to admit that the sheer sight of the mighty warrior holding his sword aloft, even in peacetime, had sent his heart racing. Our Getterix would like you to return when we sup with the other chiefs. He asked that your guest present his most extravagant offers and bring his most exotic servants and leave the guides in the outer city. 
Very well, boomed Argetrix. We shall return at dusk. Hello and welcome back. How did you enjoy ancient Germany? While you were away, I took a closer look at some of the objects and culture Prescus observed on his visit. We will first focus on the more everyday features of Hallstatt life, which are an important image to keep in mind for going forward since these waddle and daub houses and many household items are standard for most of Celtic history from even before the Hallstatt period all the way up to the medieval period. The houses on the continent tended to be rectangular in shape. As, as I mentioned, there are what is known as wattle and daub houses. To rip straight from Wikipedia, wattle and daub is a composite building method used for making walls and buildings in which woven lattice of wooden strips called wattle is daubed with sticky material usually made some combination of wet soil, clay, sand and animal dung as well as straw. Some of you may be thinking, wait, Jack, I thought the Celts lived in roundhouses. Isn't that one of the things they're famous for? And indeed, you'd be right if you lived in the British Isles. But on the continent, rectangular was the typical shape. Like the description of the wall at the Hunneberg, it is likely that some of these houses were painted a brilliant white using limestone-based paints, which would add an additional level of weatherproofing and probably prestige. Being a homeowner myself, I can tell you that now that painting the exterior of a house is expensive and time-consuming, and having the time and money to do this was probably a mark of higher social status. Some of the sturdier buildings may have used logs instead of wattle, and certain buildings, like perhaps granaries, may have been on stilts above the ground. But most everyday buildings would be similar. A standard homestead would likely have an animal pen with some livestock and perhaps some poultry, as families before specialisation largely must produce everything they need themselves. The main crops grown around the settlement would have been oats, peas, wheat and barley, which are all staples of the Celtic diet. As far as the domestic animals, there were sheep, pigs and cattle for wool, meat and leather, respectively. In this and many other periods before and after, meat was not for everyone in society and it was a marker of higher social status that the best cuts of meat as well as game, are saved for those of higher wealth and status. Again, typical of European houses for most of Central and Northern European history from the Bronze Age to the Medieval Age, with the notable exception of the Roman Empire. The central part of any homestead was the hearth, located in the centre of the building with a gap in the thatched roof above. For some of the smoke to exit the building. You must imagine the atmosphere in these homes. Sizable families of all generations would likely be cramped around this fire in the evening with smoky, dank, sweaty and smelly conditions for most. Try to imagine you finish a two-hour run with a group of ten people 
and you're all now cramped around an indoor burning compost heap and then you'll start to get an idea of what it was like. Many homes would have had inside or adjacent to the houses workstations for low still skilled craft required to maintain the home perhaps or even perhaps to trade at market weaves for the beautiful plaid cloaks the celts are famous for fire pits and potting wheels for everyday storage which we'll explore which we explored in the last episode your typical farmer would have lived outside the city walls and worked as long as there was daylight, as any other Iron Age or indeed Bronze Age society would. Typical clothing would have been double woven from flax and wool and typically made at home. In the Latin period, we know that both genders wore trousers, but women wore longer dresses and men slightly shorter tunics. And both, both wore those iconic plaid or, if you like, tartan cl tunics. Sorry, cloaks, not tunics. Tunics were held in place by brooches or fibulae, which we've mentioned many times. We can safely assume this was true in the Hallstatt period due to the widespread presence of these fibulae across Hallstatt finds. The classical sources also speak of how Latin warriors were immaculately groomed. And again, the archaeological evidence finds many examples of personal grooming. We need look no further than our Hochdorf prince and his razor and fine-tooth comb, perhaps for grooming his fabulous moustache. The skilled craftsmen lived in the inner layer among the chiefs and nobles of the Herneberg and practiced the noble arts of metallurgy. I cannot find any status difference in evidence between an everyday blacksmith and a jeweler who created the intricate brooches to pin their plaid cloaks, torques to symbolize their status or prowess, or swords to do the same, but with a deadly purpose. Of course, that is not to say the status and importance of a blacksmith would be diminished. As the Iron Age dawned, an increasing number of everyday items would be iron, such as farming tools, nails, hinges, but also iron spearheads for warriors of all class. The difference being the items of gold, silver, and perhaps some of copper were strictly made for the elite as a status symbol. Therefore, it may be that those who made only those items specifically were held in a different or higher regard. Priscus pulled his cloak tighter as the biting northern breeze cut through to his bones as he stood alone atop the brilliant white walls of the inner fortress. Once he had gathered his most exotic followers, he had requested a private moment to truly take in the view atop the walls. To the west, the sun set on what seemed like just a crack of a stream, and as his eyes wandered east, he could see how it turned into the great, sprawling, mighty river Danube. Priscus was sure that he could see for miles the steady stream of the river boats down the Danube into the Black Sea, the farm workers tending their fields and animals, the great burial mounds of their ancestors dotting the lowlands around the fort. Any large group of men, more than half a dozen, whether it be a delegation of traders or hostile raiders, would be helpless to attempt any surprise on the masters of this mighty fortress. 
Priscus had pondered such the moment he had arrived. Every move, every twist and turn seemed a calculated maneuver by his mysterious host, whom would have ample time to, as his clumsy delegation rambled along the open valley, to rattle at the gates like beggars rattling a brass cup. These were not the humble simpletons he'd come to expect from his father's musings. The men of this fortress were masters of power. Giants, and he, Priscus, felt suitably tiny, as a speck on the magnificent walls. Rosena, called Caracas. Yes? My master is ready for you now. Caracas's tone was always far more serious and respectful when referring to his master. In fact, Priscus had noticed there was little mirth in his tone once we crossed into the inner fortress. A mixture of fear and respect, Priscus reasons. But what man could make a mighty and charismatic warrior like Caracas afraid? He must be formidable indeed. Oh, wonderful. I am ready for him too. Priscus repeated the processional walk from earlier, was but was determined this time to hold his nerve. Having changed into his finest trimmed toga, he walked straight back, chin held high. Behind him were his trusty translator, a Libyan, a Sardinian, a Numidian, and a sickle tribesman from the island of Sicily. He thought they were suitably exotic hangers-on, their host, no matter how well-traveled. They each carried a gift to represent the extensiveness of Etruscan trade networks, and in the wagon behind him, guarded by... Caracas's warriors were silver ingots to represent the material wealth of the Resena. Again, they approached the mighty double doors, which were now wide open. With the warm glow of the hearth spilling out before him, the warriors on the door were replaced with more magnificent ceremonial soldiers, stunningly crafted bronze breastplates and helms with vibrantly coloured fabrics held in place by gleaming bronze fibulae. At their sides were swords, much like the long blades Caracas held at his own hip. As we crossed the threshold into the sizable hall, Priscus' senses were overwhelmed with the sights, smells and sounds of revelling and laughter. His eyes were hit with the smoky atmosphere. His nose was filled with the smells of charred meat, and his ears were filled with the voices of the powerful men, laughing and reveling. Priscus had to do a double take. There was a central harp up the length of most of the hall, with guests lounging on cushioned and fabric-covered bronze couches. They even had a large Etruscan bronze cauldron filled to the brim with what smelled like undiluted Greek wine. For Priscus, this was truly bizarre. It was a complete imitation of a symposia, but of all the many hundreds which Priscus had attended himself, he had never seen one such as this. At the head of the harp, there were three couches that stood out for their height, magnificence, and strategic position, all covered with expensive furs and fine silks. To the left of the man in the middle was a strikingly fierce but beautiful woman, with flowing locks of reddish blonde hair surrounded with a halo gold and amber jewellery that would put any Etruscan noblewoman to shame. To her left, on the same couch, three young girls 
ranging in age from about 15 to 8, dressed almost in imitation of her, with equally stunning jewellery of precious metals and necklaces of amber beads of reds, yellows and golds. To the right, three tall and striking middle-aged men with jaws like anvils and great droopy moustaches. Their warrior's frame and their intricate cloaks covered their muscle bodies and held in place with stunning gold brooches and a thick belt which held an antlered bronze dagger. But between the two benches was the man Priscus knew he'd braved the Alps to see. This man, over six foot tall, wrapped in fine purple fabric from far off Phoenicia, was covered in head to toe in gold, crafted and honed to perfection. His wide bronze belt encased a brilliant, intricate bronze dagger, the pommel coming to two brilliantly curled antlers. His muscled arms held reddish gold bands and he held aloft a beautifully gilded gold goblet. A stunning brooch encased the coloured fabrics as his purple cloak and on his neck a mighty gold torque. Like the chiefs beside him, he sported a magnificently groomed, drooping moustache and held the strain of command upon his brow. This was R. Getrix, Prince of Salt and Iron, master of the gleaming white fortress and truly the giant of the castle. That is where we're going to leave Priscus for today, folks. You'll have to picture yourselves how he held up against the menacing, piercing stare of the giant of the castle, and whether his gifts and his exotic servants were enough to impress him. This final scene is going to be our jumping off point to give us an excuse to talk about some of the features at the very top of Hallstatt society. Starting, of course, with the women who inspired the three women on the bronze bench next to our prince, the Betabel princesses. In 2005, just half a mile downstream of our towering fortress, a group of German archaeology students discovered a beautiful golden brooch on the bank of the Betabel stream. This find 
led to an excavation on the site, which led to the discovery of another one of our princely burial mounds, identical to Hochdorf and other similar princely graves. A stone-covered burial chamber with a planked floor which was once covered by a large mound of earth. However, this chamber did not contain a prince or a chief. Rather, it contained princesses. This find will prove vital to understanding more than just the role of noble women, but the artefacts will shed light on our trade eastward. So far, we have focused on Etruscan and Greek goods to the south, and we have not touched on who was being traded with beyond the Danube. The Danube River, of course, leads to the Black Sea, back towards our steppe homeland of our Celtic ancestors. So, what was inside this grave? Well, first, we have three female bodies laid to rest within the chamber. One, an adult female about 25 to 30 years old. The second, another female likely under 25. And finally, a toddler. All three of these individuals had once been covered, like the Hochdorf Prince, in gold and amber jewellery from head to toe, as well as some practical items for everyday living, including a perfectly preserved hazelnut in a small leather pouch. We explained in the Hochdor episode the clear status associated with the prestige graves like this. So these women were likely equal in status to the princes of other graves we've discussed, and one of them being a child, no less. That is a significant discovery on its own, and it tells us about the relative place, at least for noble women, in Hallstatt society. And this is further confirmed by the Princess of Vix in Burgundy, who I plan to make an Instagram post about in the weeks following this episode's release. The quality and quantity of gold found in this grave rival and even exceeds the finds at Hochdorf and other similar princely graves. Now, the other key discovery in this grave was only revealed by extensive tireless and quite ingenious work by the archaeologists. The grave was first divided up into manageable chunks and then put through a CT scanner. The CT revealed the remains of all sorts of objects whose physical traces had long since faded due to the water damage in the grave. One such object was a series of iron rings and a bit as well as a bronze facing. These items were clear evidence of bitware, which is clear evidence that the Batabol princesses were equestrians. That is to say, keepers and riders of horses. Not only that, but it indicates that not only were the Heilstart people riding horses, but that these horses were associated with the elite. The last time we discussed horses was way back with the Yamnaya, who likely brought their sturdy steppe ponies and oversized cattle with them into Central Europe during the Chalcolithic Indo-European migrations. 
Now, if you remember back to the Yamnaya and their Indo-European ancestors, they were buried in tumuli, much like the Hallstatt culture. However, the Hallstatt people's immediate predecessors were the Urnfield culture who practiced cremation. For those of you out there thinking, why did they go from Kurgans to cremations and then back to Kurgans again? The answer likely lies in the influences of the Indo-European homeland on the Ponto-Caspian steppe. Our Urnfield proto-Celts would be unaware that their ancestors were buried under mounds. So why the change? Well, it is interesting to note that as Halstatt culture rises and becomes distinct from their Urnfield predecessors, they move toward the fashion of their most likely Eastern trade partner, the people of the Iron Age Ponto-Caspian steppe, known as the Cimmerians or the Scythians. The Cimmerians and the Scythians were an Iron Age Indo-European people who I'd love to go into in detail, but their story is peripheral to our own. I'm planning a Patreon-exclusive episode on the Scythians, as Dr. Barry Cunliffe likes to say they are the parallel ancestors of the Celts. The eastern side of the story, if you will. And he has a fascinating book on the Scythians. For now, all we need to know is that they had the best war horses available, which they would likely trade into Europe at this time. And they lived in the saddle, much like the later Huns and Mongols. Of course, their best trade route into Europe for modern-day Ukraine would be up the many great rivers of Europe, which leads us right to the doorstep of the eastern Hallstatt zone. The horse will become increasingly important in Celtic warfare as the Latin period, uh, in the Latin period, with the introduction of the chariot and the prominence of the Celtic quote-unquote knight. But we see more evidence of this in sword design across the Hallstatt zone as well, which leads me to my next topic, swords and status. Swordcraft is one of the sexier sides of metallurgy and warfare. Though they may be romantic and overemphasized in their usefulness, they were then, as now, a powerful symbol of status and the power of life and death. Think of the modern symbolism with the blinded lady with the sword of justice. The Bronze Age was a bit of a heyday for swords in Europe. If we look at Britain alone, there are hundreds of different styles, all to fit a unique purpose. We have long medieval-like slashing swords, likely used from horseback and open combat, as well as short gladius-like stabbing swords, presumably for inside a shield wall. We even have a type known as the bronze rapier, which is a sharp, quick-moving blade designed to cut the opponent to ribbons. For the next section, I'm going to heavily draw on an excellent summary by sword and history enthusiast Kirk Spencer of Dallas, Texas. If you're out there, Kirk, hello. I have no idea if you're out there, as I couldn't find any way to contact you. But your summary of the archaeology and craft techniques was invaluable start into the Bronze Age sword rabbit hole. And I just want to sincerely thank you and please contact me if you're out there or if anyone knows a way to contact them. As I know, I have a lot of fans over in the US of A. As I have said previously, Hallstatt C and D is where Celtic culture becomes distinct from their Urnfield predecessors. 
And one of the key markers of this is the famous Gundelingen sword. This sword was one of the first major pieces of Hallstatt material culture exported all over Europe. I'll be sure to post some examples on the Instagram at Celtic History Pod. But it was a type of bronze sword, typically with a long leaf-shaped blade, broad, shallow butt, and pommel tang. By 700 BC, examples of these can be found all the way in the British Isles. So we can imagine that the Hallstatt peoples must have had a reputation for swordcraft, given they were influencing an area in which which not only had abundant materials for bronze, but were no slouches when it came to swordcraft themselves. This is early evidence of far-reaching trade and therefore at least some influence in what the Celtic zone will later be. That is the Celtic zone of the classical period, not our modern Celtic zone. In fact, some posit that some Hallstatt designs were Celticized versions of British sword designs like the Thames swords, so presumably cultural exchange was going both ways. If you've seen the classical Greek Xiphos sword, it is similar in design, though narrower and longer. We know from classical sources that the Xiphos was used as a backup weapon in a hoplite phalanx, which for those of you who don't know is a type of very tightly packed shield wall which lends itself to a very claustrophobic type of battle. This may lead you to believe that the Gundelinga sword was used for a similar purpose, but we simply do not know. Contemporary to the Gundelinga sword, was the more intricate Mindelheim sword. While the Gundelingen sword was shorter, plainer, and more common, the Mindelheim was longer, more decorative, and much less common. The Mindelheim sword is closer to the Roman Spartha, Spathas, which was a cavalry sword which was itself influenced by the Celtic longswords of the Latin Celts. If you're not sure what a Roman Spartha is, it is also fairly close as it is likely the predecessor of later Viking type swords. Based on a catalogue of data by J.D. Cowan in 1967, archaeologists find about 10 Gundelingen swords for every one Mindelheim. It is tempting to try and see the shorter, less decorative Gundelingen as an earlier, more primitive form that evolved into longer, more decorative Mindelheim. Yet it is now widely believed that the two swords are in fact contemporary, and Cowan admits the possibility that the shorter, modest Gundelingen type could be a less decorative and cheaper version of the Mindelheim type. In this case, the Gundelingen might be seen as the simple, more economical design made for the foot soldier, but based in form on the Mindelheim, the longer sword for the mounted tribal warlord. The Gundelingen was of moderate length, so it could serve both on foot and on horseback. This would explain why most of the Gundelingen type retains its longer slender point. It would allow for thrust, which would be more effective on foot. I personally concur with this theory. Swords have a long history of being status symbols in Indo-European cultures, and there are many examples of great kings and lords bestowing swords as gifts to their nobles. One famous example from the early medieval period is the great Charlemagne bestowing the gift of a sword to Offa of Mercia, which was simultaneously a recognition of Offa's power in his own sphere in England, but 
simultaneously a statement about Offa's comparative place to Charlemagne's Europe-spanning status. Gifting a Gundelingen sword, then, could have been such a statement from a powerful horseback riding chief to a lowly infantry-based warlord. Horses are awfully expensive to maintain, even in the 21st century, and so, in ancient society, universally, it is a symbol of nobility. If you look, for example, at the legions of the Roman Republic, it was divided into four main categories based on what equipment could be afforded. The Huelites, who could only afford javelins and a small shield. The Hastati, who could afford a helmet, a full-body shield, the famous scutum, and some armour, perhaps a chest piece known as a pectoral, or a heart coverer. The Principes, who could afford the very time-consuming to make chainmail, as well as the equipment previously mentioned by the Hestati. The Triarii, who were the veteran foot soldiers who'd been through the former categories and also met the wealth requirements to equip themselves as a Principe, but with the addition of a spear. And the Equites, and of course Equite is effectively horsemen, from where we get the word Equite. The final category is the ruling class, and they were the officers of the army, the senatorial class. The Romans themselves recognized this distinction, as Caesar often refers to the Gallic nobles and cavalry interchangeably as equites. And to go a step further with a comparison, the word equite is often translated as knight, depending on the translation of the Latin. So perhaps we can think of those Gundelingensors as the Principes and the Mindelheim as the Equites. The Hestati and uh, Velites of Celtic society would be unlikely to be able to afford a sword. We can speculate a little further and suggest that the reason that those in the princely glaives like Hochdorf did not have swords in their graves is that they were subject to no one and having a sword might suggest there was someone greater than themselves from which to receive a sword. Indeed anyone masters of such a magnificent fortress city of the Hörneberg would have no equal. I want to stress for this next section that this is pure speculation and an amalgamation of lots of scattered evidence and sources. But I'm going to attempt to give a general idea of the type of social organisation we might see with the Hallstatt and later Latin Celts. This structure is largely based on the other uh, tribal and ancient societies that we see, as well as some of the biased written evidence from Greco-Roman sources as well as archaeological evidence. We're going to start at the very top with the princes, for example, Hochdorf, which may have governed together in a council, or perhaps there was a sort of elected high king, like we see in early medieval Ireland. Think of this as a first among equals rather than a king of kings who held some loose political influence over tribal confederations which came together in times of crisis like Vercingetorix or Boudicca. Their power would likely have been tied to their access to tradable goods which they in turn traded for foreign prestige items rather than their prowess as warriors, all of which we have already discussed. 
The next strata would be chiefs and tribal leaders who swear their allegiance to a prince or a chief higher than themselves, but as likely to fight against each other as band together. Caesar would describe them as the senatorial class, much like the Romans, they would have a major part to play in warfare and trade. There would likely have been high chiefs and petty chiefs, minor tribal leaders with allegiances to larger chiefs, but effectively warlords and the, if you like, equites or knights of society. Their allegiance would be based on things like cultural self-interest, religion, oaths and bonds of fealty. Their liege would be expected to keep the prestige goods flowing. At the same level in society were the skilled craftsmen, especially metal workers of Celtic society. As we've mentioned previously, skilled metal workers and crafters of prestige goods hold a high place in Iron Age Celtic society. This could have worked on a system of patronage where a wealthy prince or chief would sponsor or patronise the work of a skilled craftsman. We also have professional or retinue warriors. The chiefs and princes would have an elite core of retinue warriors which they can call upon in times of war. These loyalties were tribal, but also contingent on the patron being able to provide them with status wealth to demonstrate the prestige of not only them, but their patron. But different from the petty chief, they would effectively be full-time warriors, perhaps displaying torques of precious metals on their arms around their necks to show their place in society, and that they had been confirmed and recognised by their chief for their bravery and value as loyal warriors. Perhaps with Gundalingan swords in their belts. These men would raid seasonally with the war parties, but also in the case of a field battle, these men would be the tip of the spear. Next we have the free men, or the citizens. Farmers which would own the land that they farm on, free men. The warriors above may fall into this category, but they would have servants, slaves and tenants to work their land for them, whom they would count on to tend the farm during the raiding season. If Halstatch society were at all like other tribal societies, the bulk of their fighting men would be in this category. Not full-time warriors, but fighting a key part of their civic duty and social status. Slightly less wealthy, but also in this category, would likely be tenant farmers, farmers which rent from landlords. Freeman also includes low-skilled craftsmen like potters, for example. High-skilled craftsmen belong in the higher strata, which we had explained earlier. We also have the youths, uh, the young men who uh, perhaps were too young to own the land of their own, uh, and but ready to uh, start their place in society as young men and teenagers. In battle, these would likely be the skirmishers, uh, javelin and slinger men, uh, 
who are much like the Roman velites, used as screening forces and raiding forces. The next category would be free women. From what little we know from biased written evidence by misogynistic Greeks and Romans, women were not exactly equal to men in Iron Age Celtic society, but appear to have had greater rights and freedoms when compared to the women of the classical Mediterranean. There are examples of women owning property, having the right to speak, and even a few examples of women warriors and chiefs, like Boudicca of the Icena tribe. Before we get too excited, it is important to recognise the role of Celtic women in warfare is something more akin to encouragement through shaming. That is, the women showing their bravado and bravery to push the men on to greater feats of heroism and to discourage cowardice. There is an inherent sexism in that. If a man is less brave than a woman, then he is no man at all, which ignores the fact that women are equally capable of defiance, bravery and feats of heroism. Furthermore, it appears that in marriage, the women only had greater power relative to the Mediterranean women, if their wealth and status prior to the marriage was greater than that of her husband. As we discussed earlier, there seems to be no diminishment in women's relative status based on their gender, more based on their wealth and place in society. We will return to the subject of Celtic women many times over the course of the podcast as it changes depending on time, place and context, but we're going to leave it here for now. Finally, slaves. Slavery in the later Latin period appears to be an endemic part of Celtic society as much as it was for their contemporaries. One could become a slave by many means, perhaps captive in battle, perhaps unable to pay a debt, or even born into a state of slavery. There is little evidence of the brutal conditions suffered by, for example, Roman slaves, but we can assume that menial labour was the primary use of slaves in Celtic society. Of course, warfare was also on a much smaller scale than, for example, the Roman conquests, so it is unlikely that Hallstatt or Latin society saw a massive influx in slaves which caused societal destabilization, much like in the Roman Republic. One example that may be a more direct comparison to Roman slaves working in horrific places like Spanish silver mines may be the families that lived and died in the salt mines of Hallstatt. But we'll never know. These may have been free workers as much as anything else. There is one honourable mention I have thus far not credited with their massive role in society, these being the Druids. The reason I have not yet mentioned them is there are little to no evidence of Druidic practice during the Hallstatt period, but their later high status and key role in intertribal politics will make them a cornerstone of later Latin society. There are a number of theories about when and where Druidism originated, with some in fact tracing the origin back towards solar priests in the British Isles during the Bellbeaker period, but we have no actual written testament of Druidic practice until the Greco-Roman period. And Julius Caesar, for example, attests to their massive role in intertribal 
Celtic politics, which is also likely the reasons that the Romans were so determined to wipe both them and traces of them out of existence. I may touch on this more when we talk about Celtic religion, but we are fast running out of time for today. So, for Celtic myths and legends, I will point you in the direction of Shan Esther Powell's excellent Celts, Celtic myths and legends. I would also recommend the Celtic Myth Pod Show, who also has my flair for the dramatic. Before we finish, I would like to thank David Fesslilian for his excellent Life at the Inn, which was the background music at the Chieftain's Hall. And once again, thank Goyfrog for Beyond the Warriors, the intro and outro music for this podcast. I would also like to plug uh, two major things, uh, my Patreon and my Instagram. Uh, Instagram at Celtic History Pod is the major place that you will find maps and images which go with the episodes. I would also like to thank Rianne very much, who is my first and only patron. Thank you very much. Thanks to her, I'm now able to pay for website hosting and I'm no longer bleeding money. <laughs> um, and if any of the rest of you feel so inclined, you can now find a link to my Patreon either on my Instagram page or in the podcast description. Okay, thank you very much, and we'll see you next time on the Celtic History Podcast. <laughs>